you're building a developer community, because the bonds are strong, the, the word travels fast. And, you know, if you don't treat people well, it can bite you. You need to help your developers really achieve the goals that they want to accomplish. I think the culture of the company and the culture of the community is the habits of the founders and how they either consciously or subconsciously go about developing those. Hello and welcome to Developer Love, the podcast for people who build developer communities. We'll hear from people working to win the hearts and minds of developers, including founders, execs, and the top minds in developer relations, dev marketing, and community management. I'm Patrick Woods, the CEO of Orbit, the community experience platform. Developer Love is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm speaking with James Tamplin, co-founder and CEO of Firebase, where he took Firebase from its earliest days up through its acquisition to Google. And quick note on audio quality today, for the first time ever, we're recording Developer Love in person. So that means James is sitting right here next to me in our dining room. As a result, you might hear a little more echo than normal. So with that, let's dive in. Awesome. James, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. This is the first one we've done in person since this podcast launched during COVID. So very excited to have you in our dining room, hanging out, talking about developer stuff. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Can we start out just by sharing a little bit about who you are and what you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a Brit originally and moved to the States when I was a teenager, uh, moved to Silicon Valley, uh, tried to start a company. It failed. And then another two and they failed. And then uh, a company called Firebase, which ended up going pretty well. Uh, sold that to Google, uh, left Google a few years ago and took a sabbatical, came out of sabbatical during COVID. And I've been working on a project called COVID Act Now, which is data viz at the US county and US state level for how COVID's going in your area. So our audience is primarily developer community builders, developer tools, aficionados. I think everybody would be really keen to hear a little bit more about your origin story with Firebase. Uh, You mentioned you had several companies before that. Uh, I know there was some, some maybe false starts with you and Andrew. So not with you and Andrew as, as a team, but with, with products. Uh, I'd be curious to hear, what was the insight that led to led to Firebase? What was that aha moment that really helped you all turn the corner there? Yeah, absolutely. So you allude to Andrew. So Andrew's uh, my four-time co-founder and high school friend. So the, the specific insight that led to Firebase, so we had, it was kind of interesting. Company number two was, uh, a social network, and we realized that you know we really wanted real time conversations in the social network. Facebook had just released their chat software, and so we created company number three was a chat product. Um, it was Facebook style chat for any website was the the tagline of that product. It was called Involve, uh, and with Involve we kind of had a small set of large customers who were doing very strange things with this chat software. So they were uh, like our gaming customers were sending game state through the the software, um, like hiding the actual <laughs> chat and like sending character positions and things like that. And we were like, what are you doing? This is, <laughs> this is a chat software. This isn't like a distributed real-time messaging system. And then light bulb goes off and we're like, oh, it was kind of at the intersection of a few different trends. Trend number one was that, you know, phones and browsers were getting substantially more powerful in sort of 2010, 2011 timeframe. And all of a sudden you had front end engineers who could build whole experiences and enabling those front-end engineers to to do that without needing back-end engineers was 
was a big win. And then the second was the real-time component that that Firebase is is famous for. You know, you had Google Docs and you know maybe Twitter, and there were like a, a couple of companies around that time that were actually doing doing real-time, uh, and so allowing the democratization of that. Instead of needing a Silicon Valley tech team, you, you just call an API and, and we synchronize your data across devices. It was really, really powerful. And so the insight there was, you know, the people were hacking around the chat system and like what asking ourselves what were they actually trying to trying to get done. And and that was focused on building great experiences and you know, focusing on on delivering real-time uh, experiences to customers was just substantially more delightful and 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 natural. Like I remember, Pult of Refresh should die was like one of the early, <laughs> the early. Uh, so I, like, do you even remember the days of Pult of Refresh? Oh, yeah. It seems like seems like an eon ago. Was was that sentiment Pult of Refresh should die? Was that a was that an official tagline or? So Vikram, who was our first employee, we we called him like the chief naming officer mm-hmm. because he would just come up with all these pithy taglines. So one of the ones he had was, uh, "Do you have data? Does it change?" Like you'll love Firebase, <laughs> uh, and, and one of the, the pull to refresh to uh, die was, uh, I think, one of his gems. But it was never an official thing. It was just you know something I'd occasionally drop at a yeah a hackathon or a yeah. conference or something, or, or you know in, in investor pitches. Yeah, of course. When would you say the developer community became part of the the story or the focus at Firebase initially? It was day one. And I think that was because of our previous three companies. We had assumed that we were the smartest people in the room and mm. or not even in the room because it was just the two of us, but uh, that we were smart and we could figure out what people wanted. And so, you know, we'd build it and they'd come and sort of classic startup mistake. But after you do three years of bootstrapping and, you know, your 20 grand in credit card debt each, you re- <laughs> incentivize pretty strongly <laughs> to change your ways. <laughs> And so we were like, okay, we're not. You know, I was actually really, really hesitant to to take a fourth at bat. It was like third time's a charm, and we mm. we didn't get a third time. So I don't know about this fourth time thing. But yeah, we you know neither of us wanted to give up, and both of us were extremely loyal to each other. Mm. And so so we we forged ahead, but really, really had a maniacal focus on on delivering to the market what it wanted, and that right from day one was assembling you know, a group of, of great software engineers and staying in really, really close touch with them, like having super short iteration cycles on on how we were revving the product. And that initial kind of core kernel of uh, of a group that we were using for those things became the basis of our community. Mm. So it sounds like the community was born out of early products, design partners and champions. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that's precisely the case. And the community was like especially with developer tools, you're kind of climbing a credibility ladder. And initially when you start a company, you have no credibility. Mm-hmm. Like all you have is some social relationships that you can kind of weasel some people into with pizza and beer and, you know, the existing social capital that you have. And so we did exactly that. We had a little co-working space over on by the Caltrain station in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. we'd have these people, you know, the, who were just initially our friends Come by and we put them on video camera and we'd uh, one-on-one and then we'd occasionally, you know, get them together and as a group and show them what we were up to. And they got to know each other and they got to know, you know, us and what we were building and uh, they got to feel a sense of ownership over it. And we kept it pretty small for 
you know, I think we started building in September 2011 and we didn't launch until April 2012. And so sort of those eight months-ish, seven, eight months was really just this small group of, of people that, that we revved and iterated with until they, they got, you know, really excited by the product that we were delivering. And they also, you know, they got to know the fellow uh, sort of alpha customers. And as I said earlier, felt a deep sense of ownership. And when humans feel, I mean, this is what you see with people joining movements or companies or whatever it happens to be. Once you feel a deep sense of ownership, that there's this care that emerges. And I've often thought like sort of he or she who cares most wins, I guess wins in a market sense, but more philosophically, like, you know, the parent who cares about their child will, will raise a, a child that is hopefully well, like well adjusted and, and successful. But yeah, this this notion of caring, I think is, it, it was sort of a unique insight and, and caring via a sense of agency or a sense of ownership over, over what the company was creating was, was a big deal for us. Hmm. Thinking back to that time, back to the early days, what would you say, you know, were some tactics or some techniques for engendering that care or, or providing that agency to those early community members? Yeah, I, well, so I think first of all, it's demonstrating that, that their voice actually matters, demonstrating that they have like some degree of agency. And that's easy to do in the initial early stages. As I said, we had, you know, seven, eight months of just 20 ish people and like those 20 people all really, really felt like they, they own some part of the, the product, like the, the feedback that they gave, like showed up in the API surface area or how we talked about it or how functions were named or things like that. So I'd say that's agency is part of it. Second is you're going to need to have some sense of mutual value creation. So you need to help your developers or your, your customers like really achieve the goals that they want to, to accomplish. You know, there's the, the famous startup cliche about helping people do something like 10 times as easily or 10 times as good. Uh, and Firebase did exactly that. And so I think, you know, once they saw just how much easier it was making their, you know, their professional lives in the software engineering field or their personal lives for their hobby projects, like just how much easier it was making it, they, you know, they started to feel feel ownership and care and like, you know, you, you just sort of get this emotional resonance with products that you really come to, to love or find utility in. And, and it, yeah, it's about you, but it's also about sharing it with the people around you. So we, you know, we'd have developers talking to their friends about like, you know, instead of, instead of like standing up, you know, your node server with Socket.io and then dealing with scaling issues and then having to like, you know, do some like sync libraries that when the hacking at all, hey, just use Firebase. And that like sense of care and ownership uh, was it was engendered from from those things as well. Yeah, it sounds like building confidence with the early community that their input will be heard and implemented goes a long way towards building that credibility early on. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the questions we get a lot is how do we grow our community? And one of the things we say often is is maybe focus less about growing it and focus more on retaining and going deeper with the people you have engaged already. Uh, and so it sounds like you've had a lot of success with that early on with just going deep with those first, the first 20 or so uh, in sort of a non-scalable fashion. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly a game of quality over quantity, at least in, in the early days. You know, the more startup cliches is it's better to have a few people love you than 
a bunch of people just kind of like you. And those 20 people turned into, you know, just massive, massive champions for us when we launched the product. You know, they were the ones commenting on Hacker News. They were the ones posting their sample projects. They were the ones who we, you know, when we had larger companies thinking about using us that we, we sent to for referrals, they were the ones that we had the press talk to. They was, those were the ones that when we mm-hmm. had our launch party, they presented on stage. And they, they were more than willing to because we had invested, you know, we invested not just like in making them successful, but we'd, we'd opened up a, a group of uh, people that, you know, they had spent many hours with. Uh, and we, yeah, we'd, we'd helped them along the way in a very personal manner. And it's somewhat unscalable to have like your developer relations people or your, your initial early startup employees like fully manage the community. You can't just like all of a sudden turn on the taps one day. Like I think you do need some smaller initial kernel because when, when new people would show up on Stack Overflow, or, you know, we had a group that was <laughs> dating ourselves now, but <laughs> Slack did not yet exist. <laughs> uh, we had a Google group where we would manage most of the communications. And, you know, in the early days it was, you know, we were, we were busy, like just dealing with the fallout from the public launch and scaling up and everything. And, you know, new people would come along and check out the product. And, you know, those initial 20 people would be in there answering questions and like helping the newbies. Hmm. And I think that was a testament to just how bought in they were to the original product. Hmm. Thinking about the, the community as it, as it scaled up beyond maybe the reach of those initial early adopters, you know, how did, how did you think about community at a, at a larger scale, you know, from a from programming standpoint or a goals and metrics standpoint, you know, how did you take those lessons from the early stages and apply them as, as you grew? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, pre-Google, we didn't hire any marketing. So, so the, just some context. So company started in September 2011 and we sold to Google three and a bit years later. Uh, it was November 2014 that we, you know, we moved our offices over to Google. In that original three and a bit years, we didn't hire any marketing people. They were just straight up developer relations and different flavors of DevRel. Uh, and that was our, our community management and our marketing team. In terms of how we actually ran the community, it was a lot of in-person events. Uh, it was a lot of like relationship building, not just between like us and the community members, but between the community members and each other. And yeah, so we, you know, we'd have, uh, you know, once a week we'd have, you know, people come by and give presentations to the team about what they were up to, uh, like multiple people. So they'd get to meet each other and they'd get to meet our team. We'd have like, many, many in-person events at our office, which was right downtown San Francisco. That was, that was really, really useful. It's funny because I, it's, it's a, a good amount of time ago. So I'm having trouble figuring out like how, from a metrics perspective, we measured it. I, I, you know, we measured registered developers. Certainly we measured, we, we measured standard like support metrics when people did write in and, and, you know, we were always like really good about, you know, turnaround time and, and things like that. And we certainly kept track of like, this is how many people we have on the Google group and uh, things like that. But I think it was, it was sort of more just the ethos of, you know, really treating our developers well and helping them succeed. So early on, you built a, a, a culture of agency and care among your early, your early adopters, your champions, if you will. You know, how did that culture expand and scale as you, as you added more team members and headcount and grew the community? 
you know, what were the sort of cultural cores that you were able to instill maybe that, that helped it grow in the way you'd like to see it grow? We had a number of sort of structural elements that we implemented that I think imbued into the new team members, both the team members who joined like the Firebase team and the community members who, who you know, or users who started using Firebase. There are, I think, a few probably interesting ones to mention. The first of which is uh, we had what was called the Firebase Voice. We sort of authored a document that had like the tenets of how, like how we speak to each other, but at, you know how we speak to our community as well. Hmm. And it was sort of helpful, knowledgeable, and low ego. I think were the like the three tenets that we had, and you know when when those would get violated. Or, you know, when, when, you know, somebody wouldn't live up to that, either a community member speaking to another community member or, or a team member speaking to the community, you know, I, like Andrew or I would, you know, would try and level set and, you know, guide how we represented ourselves publicly. Mm. So I think that was one. Another is just how we built product. So per the early days and engendering that care, we attempted to continue that as we scaled. And so for every new feature that we put out, we had, uh, what we'll call product or developer feedback sessions. And so we'd actually bring in members of the community into our mm. office and we'd sit them down with their tooling and, you know, show them the new the new features and have them write code against it. Mm. And so it kept that tie with the community going. It, it's kind of like usability testing, but, you know, we'd make the engineers or the, you know, we didn't have product managers um, for, for a long time, but we'd, we'd make the engineers you know, sit down and, and really interact with the with the community so that they were getting like the frontline view. You know, I think I think we played around with it. You know, we did a monthly newsletter and we we really put a lot of care into you know the blog posts we publish and you know the talks that we would give and things like that. Who actually wrote the Firebase Voice document? That was a combination of me and a chap called Cato who still leads Firebase support to this day. Hmm. Kato, Kato was actually one of our, we hired several of our community members. Kato is, you know, one day he just showed up on Stack Overflow and started answering all of these Firebase questions. And we're like, <laughs> who is this guy? Doesn't he have a real job? Uh, and he did. He was building a, he was building a startup on Firebase. And uh, fortunately, we were able to, to bring him into the fold. And he's, he's just a gem and, and really, really kind of carries the banner now that, that Andrew and I have left of, you know, how we should be treating our users. Hmm. I want to go back a, a little bit in the conversation. You mentioned that you hired a DevRel team and didn't hire any traditional marketers. It seems like that was sort of a, a time where growth hacking, growth marketing was sort of on the rise. What was the criteria for that decision to to not hire any marketers and to focus on DevRel-shaped folks in the, during those days? Yeah. So I think the strategy makes a big difference. We were attempting to get everyone using Firebase. We, were, you know, we had the belief that like this is how software was going to be built, and that every you know front end engineer in the world should just be like using this tool in order to build their iOS, Android, and web apps. And so when like when you're taking that approach, you just want to get as many people using it as as possible. Developers are also substantially different. You know, there's there's a reason you have like B two C, B two B, and B two D. It's because the the quote unquote buyer or, or or the customer just like approaches products substantially differently. It's it's not a buying decision. You know, you make and then use it. It really does require a lot of investment to learn a new framework or language or platform. And developers typically don't switch tool sets often. 
And and when they do, they'll like play around with something on the side and like kind of get to learn it. And then eventually when a new product or project comes around, like they will reach for their existing tool set. And so what we really wanted to do is just get as much uh, adoption by individuals as, as we possibly could. And, you know, I, th- I think there's a bunch of mechanics of how developers choose tools as well. They, you know, they like developers don't like see a Google ad and then go and like pick up a brand new JavaScript framework or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll look around and look and see how many GitHub stars it has and like how active the repo is. And like, you know, if like other people in the dev community are tweeting about it and like what hacker news is saying about it and like, you know, how vibrant is the, uh, the stack overflow question and answer. And so like none of those things I've just listed are particularly like in the domain of traditional marketing, uh, it's mostly DevRel. Uh, so you have, you know, have a, somebody with a technical background who's like inter- interacting with the community to generate those things. Uh, and so that's, you know, given our strategy of, of trying to get everyone uh, on board, that's why we chose that route. Mm. So from the outside, it seems like the Firebase community was just a massive success, but I imagine there were challenges along the way. What would you say was, was the biggest challenge when it came to building that community out? The first thing I want to say is just a lot of elbow grease. Like it was just like I spent a lot of weekends at events and a lot of nights at events and developers are like, they spend an awful lot of time honing their skill sets and like picking up new tools as I was talking about earlier is, Mm -hmm. is just like, it's a big lift. And so we in turn had to show that like and demonstrate that we were serious. And so Mm -hmm. there was just an awful lot of elbow grease in, in building out the community. So I think the second challenge that we found was, you really have to pay attention to and really care for the people who are using you. They've bet their startup on you or they've bet their career, you know, by, by, you know, vouching to their boss that like, this is the tech. And we, you know, we had a couple of snafus, you know, we, we almost lost some data several times, which is like the biggest cardinal sin you can possibly commit initially as a database company and then as a platform. And then the, the second is, you know, we, we had some snafus on billing that were, were pretty gnarly. And your reputation is everything. You know, all of that elbow grease that you put in can be lost in a moment, you know, if you mess up in a big way. And so there was a lot of crisis management throughout our, our initial days. And, and even going forward, you know, at Google, we, there's a, I think there's a, a couple of articles flying around on the internet about how, you know, somebody got charged 30 grand in a weekend. <laughs> and, you know, of course, like we rectified all of those things. And like one of them was an IoT company that had like, mm deployed Firebase into a bunch of smart fridges. And then like they had like a polling interval of like a few seconds and like, they just had like a bajillion smart oh, fridges that were like hitting our, hitting our, uh, our endpoints. And so we had to like end up like blocking their IPs so that they wouldn't get charged with bandwidth. And like, we, we did bend over backwards many times to, to help people out of these situations, but it's, you know, when you're building a developer community or when you're building a, a community of any sort, like because the bonds are strong, the the word travels fast, and if you, you know, if you don't treat people well, it can bite you. Hmm. What would you say is the secret to building things developers love? Just speak with them. Just stay really close to them, and they'll tell you. <laughs> These are very opinionated groups of people, and you know they spend. You know, it's it's not like you buy a. a bottle of shampoo and like you use it over like a month and then you can like get a new piece of shampoo like (laughs) 
it's a strange analogy, but just bear with me. It's not like a consumer packaged good. Uh, you know, you're, you're like, once you select to develop a tool, like, you know, as a, as an organization or an individual, like you're using it for a long time and like, it's painful to rip it out. And so these people are full of opinions and you just, you just got to listen to them. The second thing I'd say is integrate with their existing tool set. You know, chances are they already love a bunch of other stuff. And if, if you can make it easy for them to use two things, they, the thing they love in conjunction with the thing they haven't quite heard of yet, but, but might love, mm. you know, that, that gets a lot easier. It's sort of the paving the cow paths uh, metaphor. You know, an example here was we, we did some pretty deep integrations with Angular and Vue and Ember and some of the other JS frameworks. And once you have demonstrated to a developer that you, know, you can go to them and, and, and say, hey, like, you know, we've done the work to, to integrate with your existing tool set, like that goes a long way. So your, your time since Firebase, how have you seen the role of DevRel and the role of communities change since when you first started? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, sadly, I've seen the word community bandied about with wild abandon to some extent. <laughs> I think if you're going to invest in a community, the community to me really means like you have a set of of people using your product who are engaging and talking with each other. And you, you kind of like, it's like if you removed yourself from the conversation one day, like it would continue. And I, I think I've seen a lot of companies really kind of half-heartedly do communities. Mm. You know, they have, you know, I, I, I would call them almost like preferred user programs or they have, they have groups of, of, of people they'll they'll give sneak previews to or, or you know they'll, they'll have like you know active comments on their blog but I, I like I see I see a bunch of people who are sort of like decide that community is the hot new thing and like that's what they'll do without investing properly and then the other thing I've seen is is the exact opposite I've seen you know a handful of people like use tools like slack and put the time and energy and effort and resources into to, to like actively develop a, a a really solid community, a really solid like group of hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are actively using the product and, and helping each other, you know, learn best practices and patterns and and building really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of like with anything that has power, you you get power and influence. You get people who who gravitate towards it who are doing it well and, and, and just doing it for the sake of doing it. Mm. Uh, in a similar vein, how would you say the landscape of developer tools has changed since you started Firebase? I haven't done a ton of programming, to be honest. I've kind of like <laughs> left screens behind as much as I can. <laughs> I mean, certainly there's uh, like there's been a bunch in the serverless space that's come up. Like the container space has gotten significantly more mature there's still a new JavaScript library every week. <laughs> I've seen some really cool stuff around GraphQL. GraphQL is is pretty exciting to me with like PostgreSQL and Hasura, and like the, you know we continue to see some pretty interesting trends around you know how do you help developers just like build awesome user interfaces and like not worry about middleware. And then there's some pretty out there stuff as well, like uh, Dark Darklang, where I'm an investor who are like trying to completely fundamentally reimagine how you how you write software so by removing sort of accidental complexity from uh, from across your your tools and how they glue together and, and how 
like all of the the negative externalities that can arise. So, you know, I'm I'm pretty excited about about where things go for software engineers. Do you think if you started Firebase today, it would be open source? <laughs> we always intended to make most of it open source. Hmm. We got held up a little bit at Google uh, on the client side, but there are large parts of the uh, the Android client that are now open source. Um, Google has Google Play Services, which is sort of the common Google layer that ships across all Android devices. And there was some there was some internal like I call them debates about what should be open sourced and what shouldn't. So now all of the Firebase client libraries are on GitHub. We had intended to do. Uh, make the wire protocol open source as well and do some open source reference implementations of the server. This is just for the, the real-time database I'm talking about now. But we never got around to doing that while at Google. It's something I'm passionate about and I would have loved to see. But yeah, so I, th- I think the answer to your question is that if we would have continued independently, like more of it would have been open source. One of my favorite questions is what are you reading? Uh, I just read Autobiography of a Yogi. And what else am I reading? I'm reading Black Hole Focus, which is a book on how to align your values uh, with your day-to-day actions. I was in Alaska for a few weeks in August, so I read a book on the Alaskan wilderness, which was not into the wild. <laughs> and then a lot of a lot of random hacker news articles. <laughs> of course. What do you think the role of founders' values are as it relates to, to their culture and community? How did you think about that? Or how do you think about that today? I think it's everything. I think the culture of the company and the culture of the community is, is the habits of the founders and, and how they either consciously or subconsciously like go about developing those and embodying them. Before we hired anyone, Andrew and I, sat down and, and wrote down a list of nine values. And, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, nine is a little much, but, you know, even after we joined Google, every new person who joined the Firebase team, we'd sit down and we, we kind of whittled them down to the top three at that point. And on, on day one, the first half an hour of their, their time on the team, we'd sit down and explain them. Uh, and we'd call back to them in, in our all hands and, and how we treated the community. So, yeah, I think nothing is more important. Like the ship will go where the captain steers it. And if the captain is is abdicating on defining values or if the captain is, you know, focused on fighting the next fire as opposed to thinking long-term, then, then that'll all be reflected in, in the actions of, uh, of not just how, like how the team treats each other, but how the team treats the community. Mm-hmm. What were the top three? There was, this is your happy place was the, the number one, which basically encoded that work is sort of, sort of a very millennial thing in hindsight, Work is this thing you spend 40 hours a week at, at least for four years of your life. Like, why be miserable? Um, and so, you know, look out, like do the things that, you know, engender happiness, not just in, in you, but in your, uh, in your colleagues. Mm. And obviously not going to be happy all the time, but like, hopefully that's the case most days. Uh, and we really strive to create an environment that, that was like that. The second was speak up, we'll listen. So really we ended up hiring some, some great people and, and it's just a waste of time if you're not listening to their opinions. And I think that was, that was also, you know, it was reflected in the developer feedbacks I was speaking about earlier. It was reflected in, you know, how we, how we ran our internal meetings uh, and how Andrew and I hope, hopefully I'd like to think showed up for, uh, for the rest of the company. And then uh, we're all entrepreneurs was, 
another value that's near and dear to my heart, which sort of encodes the you know, taking ownership for, for your specific piece of the company and also encodes the, instead of, you know, sitting and waiting around to be told what to do, like you know, having a, a proactive uh, approach to, to your work. Hmm. I'm always curious about value definition and articulation of it. What were the heuristics for those three? How did they rise to the top? We ended up going to a park in Menlo Park in the early days of the company, and we wrote hundreds and hundreds of things we wanted the company to be. Hmm. And we ended up just condensing them down. And we were like, hey, these five kind of go together and these 10 go together. And so it was, it, it was a brainstorm that, that got whittled down and I think it, it just it just came out of a bunch of long form discussion, yeah. And and they they just emerged kind of organically. What were some of the ways that you made those actionable? You know, you mentioned all hands and things like that. You know, how did you keep how did you keep those values at the forefront? Yeah. First of all, we, as I mentioned, we encoded them kind of the first day that mm-hmm. everyone showed up. We had a bunch of traditions. So th- this is your happy place. We. You know, we had bring your pineapple to work day. And we basically had a tradition where anyone could put like a day on the calendar and it would just happen. So we had like formal attire day and <laughs> somebody put bring your snuggie to work day. And we, we like just, I came in and everyone was in snuggies. And <laughs> <laughs> we had a bunch of interesting stuff like that. In terms of speak up or listen, yeah, we had, we had developer feedbacks. We had, uh, we had a very tight process, so we'd do three two-week sprints. So that was a six-week, and then we'd have experiment week, which was an AKA hack week. Um, and during hack week, there was a like a subset of people who just went and did road mapping for the next six-week cycle. And the entire company was involved, and you know they'd reach out and like get feedback and make sure that you know people were being proactively uh, engaged and involved in the process. It was you know it was encoded by the the norm that you'd respond to to every tweet and to every every support message and to every Google group message with with care. And you know, we we'd set up time and uh, and processes to do that. And in terms of we're entrepreneurs, the the things that came out of experiment week uh, often formed the basis for many of our new products. So Firebase hosting came out of an experiment week. Mm. And so speaking of the open source thing, we had a project that came out of one experiment week that was basically doing like leader election on the real-time database like server component so that like you could you could stand up a, a mesh network mm. uh, and and like almost do sort of an offline sync uh, it never it never saw the light of day unfortunately but uh, yeah we had a bunch of people building building really cool stuff because of the product the, the structure we put around it mm. it sounds like you've been very intentional and the crafting from the from the values of the company to the way the culture was built to the way it scaled up. So well done. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of work, but it was absolutely worth it. This podcast is called developer love. So I asked, I ask every guest, what's one thing you're loving right now? I'm loving not breathing smoke in San Francisco. We have clear blue skies and like mid seventies. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. I'm loving seeing friends after Seven months of quarantine, so mm. it's been fun to fun to socially distance, see people in the park uh, and outside, which is which has been really lovely. It's been a it's been a strange year. Mm. So we've talked a lot about Firebase today, but you're working on some pretty cool stuff lately. You want to share a little bit about your current projects and where people can find more? 
Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, I'm working on uh, something called COVID Act Now, which is data and visualizations around COVID and the spread of COVID. Uh, so you can find that at covidactnow.org. It's with a bunch of the old Firebase team and some other smart folks from, from the tech world and from the epidemiology world. Uh, and yeah, we're just trying to help individuals and political decision makers make better decisions around this current pandemic we're going through. Well, James, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Can't wait to get this episode out and share with the world uh, all of your wisdom around values and culture and community building. Thanks for listening to Developer Love. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell a friend. You can learn more about Orbit at orbit.love slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Orbit Model. <laughs>